Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and you, you are welcome at the Sipret Roundtable on a very warm June afternoon in London town, just as it was 65 years ago. In the next 60 minutes, why the first sea lord has declared war on the chief of the general staff, President Obama, uh, he's among the pyramids, ancient wisdom coming out there, do we really need a 65th anniversary and a D-Day bash, or is it all cynical politics? Does the International Red Cross know more of what's going on in Pakistan's war with Taliban than we really do? And do Iraqi politicians really think they can clean up uh, corruption? And what did happen to the royal invitation to spend the day on the beaches? Now, President Obama in Saudi Arabia yesterday today in Cairo, the biggest speech yet from President uh, Obama on Middle East policy. But I suppose he does know where the United States is heading. Or are we seeing the announcement of a new policy that covers the whole of the Middle East? With me in the studio, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey. Um, John, um, President Obama has said this is the new beginning, isn't it? It's the new start as far as he is concerned. I'm not George Bush. That's basically what he said today in Cairo. Indeed, he had to turn over a new page. And it's interesting that he didn't rush into this. He's taken his time. He's had the program uh, that he's got to lay out, looked at in detail by George Mitchell, the, the, the Middle East envoy, and he's set out a new tone and making it clear that the Bush days are over, the days of confrontation are over, the days of backing Israel up to the hilt are over. This is a time for a balanced, sensible approach to Islam to make sure that Muslims are treated equally with any other people. He was speaking uh, sort of on neutral ground, if you can do that, in, 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 in Cairo at the university today, which included uh, in the audience members of the Muslim Brotherhood. What everybody wanted to hear, especially the um, the the sort of politicians sitting there was what do you feel about the Palestine-Israeli settlement or the possibilities of it? And he was very, very clear. He said what really what Hillary Clinton already said, no, no new settlements. Very firm on that. He had said that uh, very clearly to the new Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, that uh, all these new settlements that are creeping into the West Bank, so-called outposts that are building up, extending the settlements, are just not on anymore. This was something that uh, was tried in the era of uh, George Bush Sr., but really didn't work. But this time there's a new determination. This was set out very clearly at this time that it's bound to win support throughout the Muslim world. OK, and we're also joined from the Lima House Group of Global Affairs, um, the analyst, Hajia Tamorian. Um, Hajia, the one thing that they wanted to hear, as I said, right at the beginning was what about... Um, Israel and Palestine. They didn't hear anything new, right. but they heard it from him, and that was important. They heard it from him in that context. I think the gesture itself was important, be his being there personally. Um, I think that it was also courageous of him because shoes could have been thrown out of him, at him easily because the radicals are not at all convinced. Also, they fear him more because there is, they know there is much more goodwill in the Islamic world towards him. After all, he's called Barack Hussein Obama. And uh, the, many people really wanted to read in between his lines to hear that I am a Muslim, 
even though I can't admit it in America. But they c- could not hear that, of course. He could not admit that. But at the same time... Do you really think they wanted to hear him yeah, say, I'm a Muslim, so. knowing that he is not a Muslim? Very much. You see, according to Islamic law, if your father is a Muslim, you can never leave Islam. You are right. officially an apostate if you do not follow the faith. Even if you're following a Christian de- faith, de- which def- he is now. Definitely. It's not allowed. But he could not say that. But nevertheless, he wants to convey a message similar to that at least saying I've got all the goodwill in the world towards your faith, your civilization and um, I think he is making headways but let's remember also that this conflict has defeated many presidents including as uh, John has just said um, George Bush Sr. George Bush Sr. forced the Israeli government uh, under a former terrorist Isaac Shamir to go to Madrid in 1991 um, against his will uh, and f- b- brought him face to face for the first time with the Palestinians. But at the moment, the Palestinians are speaking with two voices. First of all, they've got too many states. Hamas has just said, we want this man to say that he will end the existence existence of Israel. In other words, he, they expect Israel to announce that it's committing suicide before it talks to them. Yeah, it's very difficult. a measure of John. the significance of the impact of the speech is that Al-Qaeda was so concerned in advance, 24 hours in advance, uh, Osama bin Laden issued one of his diatribes saying that... Uh, the Americans were antagonizing Muslims. I think this is a very interesting indication of the importance they realize that Obama can have throughout the Muslim world. John, I was down uh, earlier today uh, talking to a couple of guys who do intelligence analysis um, and quite openly of, of that area. And one of them described this visit and the speech, which he'd already got a copy of before he made it, um, as the sort of thing that we saw with President Nixon when he went to China. It is complete departure. This is a complete opener. Exactly as I saw it. It's a groundbreaking move. I mean, he said, look, the past is the past. We have not been uh, at all inclined to continue any iota of the previous attitudes to the Muslim world. This is a new beginning. I'm not setting out principles and policies step by step at this stage, but I'm giving you an indication that by the end of the year you'll see enormous changes between the the West and the Muslim world. I thought it was quite interesting, Hajir, that uh, I read one of the surveys um, from the Gulf states, and out of six countries within the region, um, 45% of the people polled, and I don't know the the numbers polled, but 45% of the people polled think that Obama is a very good thing. President Obama is a very good thing. Yeah. Out of them all, only 10% thought America was a good thing. Now, yes. that emphasises the importance, again, of this, this man as a, 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 as a figurehead, as an, a vision as far as people yes. are concerned. Uh, we ought to be uh, cautious. Um, people in the Middle East do not dare to speak openly if it's against the, the opinion of the street. I have been told one thing at night by a sheikh, and then the next morning I've heard the same sheikh on the radio saying the opposite. Um, so definitely there's, as I said, huge goodwill towards him. His problem, in a way, is that the Palestinians or the Arabs haven't got one dictator to whom you could mm-hmm. talk to, he could decide. When Nixon flew to um, uh, Peking, he talked to Chairman Mao. Chairman Mao was the supremo, the 
Palestinians, as I said, they've got two states, and even that dismantling all, forcing Israel, which is not, is not in its power, by the way, to dismantle all the settlements will not satisfy Hamas. Hamas wants nothing less than the destruction of Israel. Can I just ask uh, something else, Hashir, about Iran? Because when um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu went to Washington, he made it very clear that uh, the first thing that has to be settled, as far as he is concerned as an Israeli, uh, is uh, Iran yes. and, and what he sees as the threat of, 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 from Iran. That should not be underestimated, should it? Because there are a lot of other Gulf states saying that if Iran were armed, just as the way there are Asian states saying if Korea, North Korea were armed with nuclear weapons, we too would actually sort of uh, yes. go that route. This is the biggest fear in, in the ear of any Western leader, um, I would advise them to accept Iran's uh, nuclear bomb. I think that the genie is out of the bottle. Possibly in 10 years' time, we will have South American governments having the bomb as well. But the, the uh, prospect of the Saudis having nuclear bombs, the Egyptians, even the Algerians have said they want it if Iran has it. That's much more uncomfortable to come to terms with. So America will do its best short of military action to stop Iran, but its options are limited. Okay, just one uh, final thought, John. Um, it's only three weeks ago when the, the uh, leader of Jordan, King Abdullah, mm. said, listen, unless we sort out the problem of Israel and Palestine in the next 18 months, there's going to be war. Um, we take that seriously. Indeed. I think the, there's now a new drive to enlarge the whole issue into a regional issue and get more people involved so that you could get, ideally, all the uh, Muslim nations acknowledging the existence of Israel in return for, you know, the right of Palestine to have their own state and a part of uh, Jerusalem as, as their capital. Just an aside, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, President Sarkozy was in the, in the Gulf states a few days ago opening the first permanent mm. French uh, military base in United Arab Emirates. I think that's more to do with Sarkozy's uh, <laughs> self-glorification than with des a desire to You don't just open up a base, though, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the Gulf of Aden has now become a hub for pirates, and, of course, there are lots of French ships on mm. the, the ocean. Okay, and also selling aircraft. Now, talking about <laughs> ships on the ocean, etc., what on earth is going on uh, in in the MOD, I mean, people have been saying that for a long time, I know, but about all sorts of things. But as we have the this week, we have the first Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Jonathan Band. I mean, sounds to me it's actually fanging the Chief of the uh, General Staff, Sir Richard Dannett, uh, basically saying, um, well, we ought to have aircraft carriers, and anybody who says that um, we shouldn't be having aircraft carriers, which by implication that's General Sir Richard Dannett, um, is talking nonsense um, on the line, the defence editor of The Times, Michael Evans. What's going on, Michael? Um, it, I don't think it's quite as exciting as that. Oh, dear, come on. <laughs> I have to say that, you know, that the issue of the carriers is, is, of course, it's one of the, the major issues because it's, they're going to cost a lot of money, just under £4 billion. That's just for the, air, uh, for the ships alone, let alone the aircraft. Um, so, of course, it's been one of the big things banded around, and th there is no doubt that there are a lot of people inside the Ministry of Defence who are against the carriers because of the cost and because they think, well, times have changed. We don't need carriers to fight the Taliban, 
combated where that argument. What General Dannett said in a speech uh, three or four weeks ago was that he thought too much money and resources and time was being devoted to Cold War legacy equipment. Uh, and what he had in mind, I know, is actually the Eurofighter. I don't think he's against Eurofighter, but I think he's not in favor of having as many Eurofighter typhoons, as they're called now, uh, as is being envisaged by the RAF. It, I don't think that he had in mind the carriers when he made that speech, partly because he emphasized the Cold War element. And, of course, as you know, the two carriers were actually only being mooted uh, during the uh, Strategic Defence Review of 1998. So I think that's not a Cold War item. Nevertheless, uh, of course, there is a bit of a battle going on between the service chiefs and between the services and inside the Ministry of Defence about what on earth they're going to do in the future uh, with all this equipment bashing around, all this procurement bashing around, and no money to pay for it. Right. I mean, the General's got a point when he says it's only 10% of the MOD's equipment programme um, is to be invested in the land environment, as it's called. Well, of course, of course he's right, um, but you also have to look at what the services actually provide, and basically the army provides uh, men with boots on and carrying rifles, and the navy provides ships, and the RAF provide aircraft. So you, you're always going to have that imbalance, and I haven't worked it out, but I would have thought the, the wages bill for the army must be uh, you know, five times as high as it is for the other two services. But, yeah, sure. Dannett is trying to make the point, here we are uh, in a major campaign that's likely to go on for, who knows, 10, 15 years. We have to struggle to get the, uh, the funds to cover all the equipment we need, and uh, we're only absorbing 10%. Yeah. We actually haven't started, I mean, work hasn't really started on the two carriers, the Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales, and as, as somebody was saying to me the other night, listen, somebody in the Navy that is, um, the cost of actually getting out of the contract now would be so prohibitive that we couldn't afford to do it. Uh, and then I said to him, well, that's really, the cost factor is the only real defence you've got for them. And he looked and said, well, you know, some people might think that. Well, there's the jobs issue as well, of course, because you know, there's 10,000 jobs. So there are a lot of ministers of whatever variety uh, who will be saying you know, different arguments, jobs on the one side. Uh, cost on the other, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, when, when you people say, oh, we couldn't possibly cancel because of the penalties, well, you know, that's pretty well a sort of fairly uh, traditional sort of argument. It's what they've been saying, for instance, for years about Eurofighter Typhoon. We can't back out of the agreement with the other nations because the penalties will be so high. But I can bet you anything you like, we don't buy uh, a full third tranche of Eurofighters. I bet you that uh, they will be reduced uh, in one way or the other because we basically don't need all of them. No, sell them to the Saudis. They've got 72 all of them. Exactly, or the Omanis. I mean, there'll be a deal in the end where we don't have all the ones that we want and give them to somebody else. I tell you, Mike, in in a moment of uh, poetry as you'd expect. Um, I was thinking we have uh, these two senior officers, um, Admiral Band and General Dannett. They're retiring in August. It was rather like two two rather sort of splendidly gold-laced moths around the, f- the final candle of, uh, of, of, of treasury, treasury handouts. And that is really where the big battle is going to come, Lovely. isn't it? Very you like that, by the way? And, uh, yes. I, I mean, you I, can I, use it if you like. I, I like, I like <laughs> that. And, and, uh, yes, and, and of course it's true. Uh, Jonathan yeah, Vance goes in uh, July, and mm-hmm. 
uh, Richard Dennett will go at the end of August. Um, so they've got, you know, not a lot of time left to a bit of, do a bit of bashing, uh, and I'm sure they will both, and their uh, air counterpart too, who's also leaving, I'm sure they will take as much advantage as they can of the time left to uh, bash for their, uh, for their services. Yes, and long may they bash around the candle of the Treasury. Gosh, it can't go on for much longer. Michael Evans, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. John, it was ever thus... Uh, this this whole thing about um, you know the treasury looks round and says uh, and we get some money out of the MOD, but the difference is, I suppose at the moment we're under a, we, you know we've got crunchy credit going on, we've got government in a mess, and somebody looks round and says the MOD is the third highest spender in Whitehall. Do they need it? Well, that is the problem. I mean, it's a very easy target to go to when you can justify cuts because of the state of the national economy. But another difficulty is that there's, a, in my view, a distinct lack of, of support in the higher echelons of government these days for uh, military matters. I think, uh, and maybe it's an old man talking, but I mean, in the days of the 60s, there was far more concern for the military expenditure. Okay. By the way, Christopher, I want to ask you and John a question. Good. Why is it in the British uh, political system, it's not the Prime Minister or the Cabinet who decide defence policy, but the Treasury men with the money? Uh, because they pay for it. But whose money is it anyway? And the Prime Minister's First Lord of the Treasury too. Yes. Ah. Yes. ah Never forget I that. See. He doesn't. I didn't know okay. that. Well, he is at the moment anyway. Yeah. Um, right. Um, from the future to the past, or is it 65 years ago this week, um, the Allies landed on 80 kilometres of the beaches of Normandy. The long-awaited, especially by Stalin, I suppose, invasion of Europe had begun. It was called Operation Overlord. It had taken three years to plan, a plan that changed many times, especially after the United States entered the war. Now, this weekend, Presidents Obama and Sarkozy and Prime Minister Brown and Prince Charles, at last moment, will be, will be with other political leaders remembering the events of Overlord and all that followed for the next half century as a consequence of Overlord. The days and weeks along the south coast of England were, this time 65 years ago, all about military traffic jams and the weather. Here's the defence editor of BFBS Radio, Patrick Heed. Operation Overlord, the codename for the invasion of Northwest Europe, was conducted in two phases. An air assault landing of American, British and Canadian airborne troops shortly after midnight and a seaborne landing of Allied infantry and armour divisions along a 50-mile stretch of the Normandy coast, divided into five sectors. Utah... Omaha, Gold, Juno and Sword. The day has broken now. The day has become clear. The sky is blue, although there's still a good deal of cloud about. The whole sea is a glittering expanse of green with white crests everywhere. The invading British 2nd Army consisted of 83,000 troops. The US 1st Army totaled 73,000. General Bernard Montgomery was the ground forces commander-in-chief. Opposing Monty, his old Desert Fox adversary, Erwin Rommel. General Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, wanted the invasion to begin on the 5th of June, but the weather was foul, making conditions almost impossible to launch landing craft and preventing aircraft finding their targets. Allied troop convoys already at sea were forced to take shelter as best they could. To call the men back would have been a disaster, but the weather broke enough of the green light to proceed. The landings began on D-Day, 6th of June, H-hour, the time of the landings, half-past six in the morning. 
We circled round with the um, various types of vessels opening fire on the beach, which we could see quite plainly in the uh, dim morning light, uh, opening fire on the beach uh, in their own uh, manners and at the appointed time. Once across the channel, the Allies faced the concrete might of the fortified Atlantic Wall, its machine gunners, heavy armour, barbed wire, booby traps and a million mines. Beyond that lay Rommel's panzer divisions, but disagreement and fudge amongst the German generals meant that just three divisions would deploy close enough to intervene immediately, the other four scattered in southern France and the Netherlands. On invasion morning, many panzer commanders were unable to move. Hitler had not given the necessary go-ahead to change tactics, and his staff refused to wake him up upon news of the invasion, believing that the Normandy landings were a distraction from the real thing. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is a special bulletin read by John Snag. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. Allied casualties on D-Day, killed, wounded, missing or captured, are estimated at 10,000. Casualties and losses on the German side that day numbered 9,000. The paratroops are landing. They're landing all around me as I speak. They've come in from the sea and they're fluttering down, red, white and blue parachutes fluttering down and they're just about the best thing that we've seen for a good many hours. They're showering in. There's no other word for it. The battle for Normandy continued for two more months. Three million troops had landed by the end of August, by which time Paris was liberated, and the Germans were in full retreat across the Seine. By then, half a million Allied and German troops had become casualties, and 19,000 French civilians had been killed in the push to liberate Europe. It was the BFBS's uh, defence editor, Patrick Ede, reporting now. Um, now, the, um, a D-Day fact for you. The majority of troops who landed on the D-Day beaches were from the United Kingdom, Canada and the United States. However, there were also troops from many other countries in the Battle of Normandy. Australia, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, France, Greece, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway and Poland all provided troops. John Dickey... I cannot believe this, actually. Um, I assumed uh, that you um, were in short trousers and had to do homework every night, but you were there. I wasn't actually in the kilt, but I was in the Scottish regiment of the Scottish Horse, the 79th Mediumatory. We were not intended initially to be in the initial landings because... Uh, you were Juno. We were Juno, but uh, at the last minute Montgomery decided he needed a heavier gun power and instead of the 25-pounder uh, field guns, we were called in at short notice with the medium guns to support the Canadians who were being... Uh, the initial thrust came from them, but... You know, we had been trained over and over again to do all sorts of things, but we'd never been trained to fire over open sights. When we were briefed, and I was briefed, you know, for a week beforehand, that we'd be up at uh, Carpica Aerodrome, which is just looking into call at H plus 12. We didn't get there for six weeks. We were stuck on the coast, just in from the beach, firing over open guns, and... Uh, 
There was a paper marching up and down the gun site, uh, playing his pipes to encourage us. But Not to frighten the Germans. Uh, no, it was difficult to give my orders and, uh, above the noise of the pipes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was a sense of, uh, you know, pent-up uh, enthusiasm to get going because we'd been trained and there'd been pressure for a second front from all sorts of people, not just from the Russians, but from all the exiled leaders who wanted to get back into Europe. They said the time has come to get back. But it did take us a lot longer to get off that beach. Yeah. Tell me, what did your, you and your men think you were doing? I mean, was it the liberation of... Well, we had been indoctrinated with this awful uh, vision of uh, Europe clamped down under the heel of the Nazis. And uh, it was a sense of uh, exhilarated patriotism to say we must do something about it. And the only people who could do it were the Brits. And you volunteered. And uh, I volunteered because I was at university at the uh, officer training corps and uh, I got six months to complete my gunnery course and then went into the army. Right, yes. And five years later came back to resume my studies uh, <laughs> to learn something about history. <laughs> Tell me, John, there's one other thing, or two other things, really. I mean, this six, why 65 years? It seems to me we do 50 years, we do 60 years, we do 75 years. Why well, 60 I think they realised they couldn't probably get many gathered together <laughs> to our 70th anniversary. You were there last week. There was a great uh, sort of memory going, uh, you know, on 50 years with uh, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh leading the, the, the ceremonies here. But uh, I think this was felt that this was probably the last chance to get a sizable number together. OK, tell me what happened. What did your people at the Foreign Office say happened to that invitation that should have gone to the Queen... And at the last minute, they said, Prince Charles, could you turn up? I mean, a week's notice. It's as if you've got nothing else to do. Well, uh, there's a, a blame game shuttlecocking on both sides of, uh, of Downing Street. Uh, number 10 are saying that uh, the Foreign Office should have got the embassy in Paris to make it clear right from the start that the Royal family would expect to be invited. The, the better argument, in my view, is that uh, when Gordon Brown as Prime Minister got his invitation, he should have made it clear, look... Uh, if anybody is to be invited, it is the royal family because the Queen is the only living monarch who was actually in uniform during World War II. And therefore, it's a bit of a nonsense to expect Prince Charles at the last minute to drop everything. But he did, in fact, decide that this was an occasion when he had to be there, and then good luck to him. Right. Another D-Day fact. On D-Day, the Allies landed about... 156,000 troops in Normandy. The American forces, 73,000, 23,250 on Utah Beach, 34,000 on Omaha Beach, and 15,500 airborne. In the British-Canadian sector, 83,000 troops were landed, 61,000 of them, nearly 62,000 were British. On the line, Corelli Barnett, the military historian and the author of Engage the Enemy More Closely, which is really the history of the Royal Navy in the Second World War. Um, Bill Barney, I get the impression sometimes that we forget about the Navy. Well, I think we do. The emphasis is so much on the ground fighting once the, uh, the troops hit the beaches and the difficulties in getting through, uh, off through the beach defences and inland that we forget the, the enormous operation to actually put um, this expeditionary force uh, ashore. We, we should, it's not like a land battle like Alamein or Stalingrad where you, you, you're, you're just, you have your land start line. All these troops had to be brought and landed. And in fact, the naval side of D-Day, uh, Operation Neptune, actually began about 20, something like 24 hours beforehand on the 5th of June because all these ships 
uh, something like 2,700 vessels had to be moved from ports as far afield as Scotland and the south coast of England. Uh, and these were ships ranging from 30,000 ton battleships, 14,000 ton liners, to simply Thames barges under tow. These all had to be organized. They had to be moved. So they had to be minutely timed so they arrived on schedule and in the right sequence um, in the English Channel. And uh, this was the most tremendous operation ever planned in terms of amphibious warfare. And, and these, all these, uh, these ships turned up in a concentration area in the English Channel south of the Isle of Wight, and then they were guided down what was nicknamed the Spout towards the invasion coast and through lanes that have been swept in the German minefields. It was a brilliant operation. It's interesting. I was talking to somebody at Trinity House the other day and he said to me, you know, don't forget when it happened, we actually laid the boys and the lights, which they weren't switched on until afterwards, but we laid the boyage so that people didn't bump into each other. Well, that is absolutely true. I mean, there were, there were dim lights on, on boys in the, in the swept passages, so people actually knew where they were going, because obviously the, this uh, seaborne approach march was um, in the night before D-Day. It was in darkness, and yet nothing really went wrong. The Germans were not able in any way to interfere with their U-boats or E-boats, and, and so we, the, the, this huge Allied armada duly arrived off the beaches. Uh, it arrived, um, it knew exactly how it had got to deploy in order to, to make the landings and back the landings, and that all went absolutely to plan. So it really was quite amazing that this, this should have been done so successfully. The uh, hmm? final thing um, struck me that um, General Eisenhower, I mean, he wasn't convinced, was he, that it would work? Well, I think he was. Uh, his caution was understandable. I mean, the thing was, we look back on it now, and the actual D-Day turned out to be uh, as, as successful as was necessary to be. The campaign ended in a complete, utter defeat of the German armies, and and so we. It has a, a quality, on, in retrospect, of inevitability. That wasn't the way it was beforehand. It, the the the, the ha- hazardous nature of the whole operation was well and truly appreciated. And the other side of it is, it was a one-off gamble. I mean, if, that, if, they, if Rommel had succeeded in dunkirking us on the beaches and, and the whole thing had ended in a shambles, we would never have been able to mount such an operation again. Uh, that was, it was a one-off. And so the, the risks were enormous. And then when you add to that the fact that the weather was, um, was appalling and the, we, they had to go to choose Eisenhower in a great act of uh, command decision, um, they said the operation would go on in a, in a, 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 a window between two lots of bad weather. Mm. So I think the whole thing was uh, an incredibly risky thing. Um, and was, in fact, brilliantly managed. The only place that it really, really, really went wrong and in dangerously wrong was on Omaha Beach, where the American uh, military and naval planning was, was really, uh, they, they refused to learn from us, uh, and they really made a muddle of it, and, and they, they got pinned down on Omaha Beach mm. for this, this famous episode um, where um, the, the Germans got nearest to doing what they wanted to do, i.e. Dunkirking, uh, on the beaches. Right. Corelli Barnett, thank you very much indeed. There's another D-Day fact here. At the start of the war, the Royal Navy um, had 127,000 officers and rates. By D-Day, it had 780,000. 
than 900,000 workers were engaged in shipbuilding and everything that went with it. Uh, Hashir, just quickly, I mean, you were born in a, in, a, in a region very much caught up in both the First and Second World War. Yeah. Was the war that, or the success of D-Day and what followed very much part of the reason that you understood so much about Europe when you came here in what, uh, Not, Yes, that's the very reason I'm sitting beside you is due to that success. I was about four, not yet even four on D-Day, but um, my father was, I remember, very grateful that our part of Western Iran, the Kurdish parts of Western Iran, um, was occupied by the British Army, not by the Russian Army. And um, therefore, he befriended the British officers and he formed a great admiration for them and also for the BBC's telling the truth of the war, even when things went wrong for the Western side, the British would admit it, but the German radio would not. Right, John, very One quickly. naval success that should be mentioned was the Mulberry Harbour system, these floating pontoons that enabled the reinforcements to come back to the beaches. Yes. Without that, it would have been very difficult for us hemmed in on the beaches. OK, also on the line, mm-hmm. um, and jolly good too, Anthony Beaver, uh, the military historian, who publishes um, today, isn't it, your book D-Day, and I must say, it's the battle for Normandy, and it's not just the landings that your book is about. Uh, that is absolutely right. Uh, I was always um, intrigued by Normandy, having worked about on the Eastern Front with Stalingrad and Berlin and so forth. And it was the American official historian Martin Blumerson um, who wrote about the Battle of Normandy who encouraged me to compare the two fronts. And always wanted to assume that the fighting in Normandy uh, was nothing in comparison to um, the fighting in the Soviet Union. But in fact, one found that uh, uh, the the savagery of the fighting and um, above all the casualties were indeed comparable. And in fact, the Germans were losing. Uh, more men per division per month uh, in normally twice as many, in fact, as on the average on the Eastern Front. And I think this is a, a reassessment, really, of what our forces faced. I tell you, we're going through, uh, I was, what, 500 and more than 500 uh, pages. I get the impression um, that there is a sense of... Uh, a lot of it was wrong. A lot of things that happened which we'd rather forget that happened, almost verging on um, war crimes. Well, no. I mean, I think that I, I was quoted um, as saying in one long interview or whatever about the bombing of Caen. What I was really trying to say was that I think the bombing of Caen was um, a terrible blunder because it was a contradiction in military terms. You do not want to smash a city to pieces just before you capture it. And it was supposed to be captured in the first 24 hours. Um, the other thing was that um, all of the German troops, in fact, had, of course, been already moved forward towards the beaches, and there weren't any German troops really left in Caen, so only the civilians suffered. And it would have been much more effective to have used uh, fighter bombers against the bridges um, if it was a question purely of cutting the communications, um, which might bring up German reinforcements afterwards. Tell me something about, um, I suppose, the consequences of it. I mean, you have... I mean, you haven't quite done the whole war, but I always get the impression that you've you've almost done the the salient points of that Second World War. Um, What were the real consequences of Normandy? Could it, if it had have failed? Well, we're into the minefield of counterfactual history and the what-ifs. I mean, there is no doubt, uh, and I couldn't agree more with Corelli Barnett, it's easy to think now, looking back, that uh, success was inevitable. It wasn't. Um, and we were incredibly lucky with that particular window in the weather. Now, if Eisenhower had made the wrong decision, oh, my goodness, the 
weight of responsibility on his shoulders at that particular moment. But if he'd made the wrong decision and postponed, they would have had to postpone, and that would have taken them right into the great storm. Now, they, wouldn't, they would have had a meteorological warning about the great storm, but they would have then had to postpone yet again. Well, you can't put troops back and forth onto ships without, A, damaging morale in an appalling way, but also it would have given the game away to the Germans by then. So um, the landings could easily have uh, faced a far worse defence uh, from the Germans than, than, in fact, we got. Right. Thank you very much, Anthony Beaver. And the book is D-Day, The Battle for Normandy, uh, published by Viking Penguin. Uh, get a hold of a copy. It's worth it. Thank you very much indeed. It's another D-Day fact. More than 425,000 Allied and German troops were killed, wounded, or went missing during that whole battle for uh, Normandy or the Battle of Normandy. And what of this weekend? BFBS will be there this weekend for a special two-hour um, outside broadcast from Aramosh on Saturday. I think between 2 and 4 p.m. UK time, um, the man who knows about this will be Jamie Gordon. You'll be there, won't you, Jamie? It is between 2 and 4, isn't it, UK time? That's right, Christopher. I certainly will be there with Patrick Eade and uh, Peter Russell doing our best to bring a flavour of um, the events that are happening here. What sort of pre preparations are going on? Uh, pretty intense. Um, the security operation is very noticeable. We're in uh, Caen at the moment trying to sort out various bits of paperwork, and uh, security is very high, likely to tighten even uh, more over the next couple of days with uh, high-profile visitors such as President Obama, uh, President Sarkozy, and now, of course, the Prince of Wales and Gordon Brown. They're all coming. Preparations on the beaches in the next day or so will involve the planting of uh, thousands of flags, uh, many of them, most of them, in fact, with inscriptions and messages from the general public, but also veterans and uh, family members. Uh, and they'll, they'll be pegged out at uh, Enel, very near to uh, the beach of uh, Aramanche, and um, certainly travelling over on the ferry today, uh, preparations of, of physically getting people here and getting them into accommodation and, um, and getting them sorted out for the events that will happen predominantly on Saturday. Got any feel yet what the French think of all this? Um, it's a bit difficult to tell. I haven't really met any Frenchmen apart from the person we've just hired a car from, and he didn't say much. Um, <laughs> Took your they, money and went, they, I know. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know that, um, that the atmosphere, certainly amongst the British veterans that we met, um, is of anticipation. Uh, obviously, uh, veterans come here on a yearly basis, but there is something special about this, uh, this particular year, and, uh, and that's why it's caught the imagination of uh, people not only in the UK but also this side of the channel. Jamie Gordon thank you very much and it's between 2 and 4 UK time where can we hear it Jamie? Uh, you can hear it on um, DAB digital radio across the UK and on BFBS stations around the world okay. we're going everywhere that day. Many thanks indeed. Another D-Day fact for you 11,590 aircraft were available to support the landings on D-Day Allied aircraft flew 14,674 sorties. 127 of them were lost. Um, John, um, listening to um, Bill Barnett and to Anthony Beaver and Jamie Gordon um, on the beach there itself, mm. do you have a memory? Does it, is it memories? Oh, indeed, and full of them. I mean, uh, um, 
I can think of one interesting little fact that you could add to your fact sheet, and that is that within 24 hours of landing, the Americans had mobile bakeries and mobile shower systems there. And it was particularly useful for my batman, who left his teeth back home when we boarded, and he couldn't uh, deal with the hot biscuits that were provided by the British Army, so he made friends with some Americans and, and, and bought some bread. Hajir, when, when you, again, when you, when you listen to all this... Um, it, I wonder sometimes you think to ourselves, well, I don't know, should we still be going over the same old ground, literally the same old ground, or do we sense this great feeling of politics taking charge? Well, I feel that nations need ceremony and uh, to feel emotional is part of our nature. I feel that we are not merely doing it for the families of those who sacrificed their lives and those veterans who survived, those people, honourable people such as John who were, were prepared to put their, their lives down for the rest of us. But also we need to express our own gratitude and I therefore I am personally glad that we do this. Right. I want to talk about North Korea, if you don't mind. It's, it's shifting to something not entirely differently because... Um, I was listening to the United States Defense Secretary, Robert Gates, saying that there are signs that North Korea is about to launch another long or maybe medium-range uh, missile. And there are regional reports, mostly from South Korea, uh, saying there's going to be another nuclear warhead test. Well, I suppose there are four questions. Why? What's anyone going to do about it? And does it matter? Is it all too late to do anything? Fourthly, is a short, sharp war in that region inevitable? maybe five, do we get involved? Um, John, um, the next test is scheduled for around, I think, about this time next week or just a bit later. Indeed. I have an awful feeling that it's the last desperate strike of a, a second alien dictator. I mean, he's, as you know, just announced that uh, his successor will be his uh, youngest uh, son, a 25-year-old. And uh, I just feel that this is a man who wants to go out in, in a with spectacular uh, way, that just proving that he's got a country to the same level as these sophisticated Western countries with uh, all the weaponry that you need to establish a so-called uh, stake in, in the power game in the world. But whether you take it any further than saber-rattling, I don't know. OK, um, as you have the second question, what's anyone going to do about it? Yes, I was being asked this question the other day, and I said... Um, what do you do when some important countries fall into the hands of basket cases? But uh, intelligence apparently from North Korea is that is that he may not be in uh, full charge, that there are sinister men in the background who um, could um, who could exert power. So um, you see, you don't have to be a sinister man to say, listen, we've got the we've got the expertise, or we can get it, to build a nuclear warhead when for. 50 years, you felt oppressed, repressed, or whatever. And also, you look around, and you see how America, for example, treats anybody who's got a nuclear weapon who's about to get one. But anyone with a tiny little bit of uh, observing power of the world would see that there is absolutely no chance of North Korea, another war, another Korean war being started by America, um, because of mere political... Well, they may not start it, John. I mean, they may not start it, but the, the North Koreans might start a war. Certainly, a great deal of anxiety in South Korea these days. They feel that with these naval exercises over this disputed uh, islands off the coast, this might be more than just uh, a bit of bravado. I think there is a feeling that tension is 
coming to a point where it could easily go either way. So yeah. are you implying, Christopher, that they are pl um, having, beginning to have nuclear weapons because they are intending to start a, another war? Is no, that I mean, the whole thing about nuclear, nuclear weaponry, surely... Um, you've got the capability. It is part of the whole sort of psychic uh, yeah. or, or, or the psyche of, of, of society. And in some ways, it is a badge. And it's as simple yeah. as that. And in but certain it, societies, it's, it's, it's society you feel threatened. Starving. This is society which is starving. They are not in danger at all from the outside. Why do they do this? Well, that is a greater question, not one, not one for me to answer, but when you say uh, they're not in danger from the outside, if you sitting, happen to be sitting in North Korea, you might feel quite differently about that. I tell you what, it, it's, 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 it's something that goes on from that. Um, I uh, looked, and when was the date? Where are we now? We're the 4th, aren't we? Indeed. So, 4th, so last Tuesday last week. President Obama, he said, well, I will pledge military support for America's East Asian allies. So, defence commitments, John, and interests mean we get involved or leave it to the region. Or are we actually in the region nowadays by, because that's the way diplomacy and uh, strategic thinking works? Yes, there are no lines drawn across the map anymore. Everything is open. And I think it's understandable that Barack Obama should make such a statement. It's not just gesture. I think it's to shore up countries like uh, South Korea, countries like Japan, who feel yeah. the threat is coming in one direction and there's no sort of counter threat being built up. And I think that was a very sensible move by yeah. Barack I mean, Obama. 11, 11 hours ago, just 11 hours ago, uh, North Koreans sent in one of their warships into South Korean territorial waters. Mm. And again, you know, you get uh, President uh, Lee Myung-bak of South Korea. He's saying, um, I'm quoting here, if North Korea turns its back on dialogue and peace and dares to carry out military threats and provocations, the Republic of Korea, that is South Korea, will never tolerate that. I mean, what do they mean by that, Hajir? Never tolerate it. Well, they have to say that anyway, but um, I can't imagine they're going to war again. Ah. Famous last words. John, um, position of China, very, very important here. Yeah. Crucial in this case. I, mean, I think they have a great deal of pressure to exert on Pyongyang. Uh, they control a great, of the, great deal of the uh, supplies and infrastructure on which Pyongyang depends. So if they so choose, they can I mean, dampen down all this tension. And I think it won't be very long before one sees signs of, of what they're doing in the background. China's got a bit of a problem at the moment this week because it's today, isn't it, has she had the, um, the anniversary, 20th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Um, and the whole place has been put under a cordon of police so that no prot protester can go in to... But we're all doing business with China. Mm. I mean, That's we had, the, the Americans have their mm. Treasury Secretary there again mm. uh, yeah. there last week and said, don't worry, Absolutely. Don't keep investing. International relations is not about human rights. Yeah. But it doesn't alter the fact of the, the dreadful things that happened uh, right. 20 years ago. That's right. Um, can I give you another D-Day fact, quite a long one? Uh, today, there are 27 war cemeteries mm -hmm. that hold the remains over 110,000 mm -hmm. dead from both sides during the Battle for Normandy. Um, only 78,000 German, 93,000 uh, American, 17, nearly 18,000 British, 5,000 Canadian and 650 Poles, and between 15,000 and 20,000 French civilians 
died in that battle. Uh, mainly as a result, it has to be said, of Allied bombing. Mm. Uh, can I move um, to Iraq? Um, Hashir, um, corruption, always been the cry, hasn't it? Oh, well, people in Iraq are corrupted. Um, Iraq's former trade minister, Abdul Fallah Sudani? That's right. He was arrested uh, at Baghdad Airport on corruption charges in Paris as he was trying to leave the country. Yes. Uh, well, I know the British ministers are going for all sorts of reasons, but... Um, <laughs> they're not leaving the country on us. They're not staying here. <laughs> yeah, they're not turning the lights up. To places up, where they could not be extradited mm. from. If only they would leave the country, it might make life easier for us. <laughs> yeah, uh, tell me, uh, right. Hashir, tell me... I mean, as George V would have said, tell me, Mr. Tell me the name of your... When tell me the state of your country. you want to know about co real corruption in such a country, you go to the oil men or businessmen because they have to pay, pay bribes. Mm. And I was asking this of a very dear Kurdish friend who was staying with me from Iraq recently. Um, and uh, he's in charge of a British uh, computer company. He was saying it's getting far better. B before... Until a year ago, nothing happened in Iraq, even if you had the best proposals, unless you paid huge amounts of money. But it's now getting better. The Rafidain Bank, for example, is able to connect its branches electronically. People can go into a hole in the wall and get money like uh, other civilized Like they people. do in the fees office at Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, things are getting better, apparently, and this is because... Nuri al-Maliki's government is getting its act together as he becomes more established as a strong man. Um, remind me, elections, new elections there, December? That's right. Right, we'll see what happens there. I'll give you another D-Day fact, or facts. By the end of 11th of June, um, that's today week, um, 326,547 no, troops... 54,000 vehicles and 104,000 tonnes of supplies have been landed on the beaches. Despite some very bad weather, too, it's a tremendous operation. Astonishing. That. I mean, yes. some of the pontoons broke away. And, uh, yeah, a lot of it, thanks. But I had to send one of my men back to get dental treatment back in the UK because there's no dentist here. So, and I went down to sea and it was a dreadful sight. Right. Um, talking of dreadful sights, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, this week said that yet again it's the civilian population that suffers most during conflict. On the line from Islamabad, ICRC spokesman, former brigadier in the parachute regiment, Ian MacLeod. Um, safe and unimpeded access to the area remains essential for our teams to deliver, but can you do so, brigadier? Well, where we're trying to get to, yes, we are. Um, of course, if there's fighting going on, we wouldn't even dream of putting our people in there. But yesterday we managed to get an assessment team into Mingora, which is the main town in the Swat Valley. And uh, they arrived late last night and uh, spent the day doing an assessment to see what uh, we might be able to do. Tell me, that, I mean, there's no running water in most places, no electricity. Food is pretty hard to come by. Yet again, the civilian population, I suppose mine immediately leaps to what's been going on the last few years in, in, in Sri Lanka. It's always the, uh, the civilian population that, that takes a battering. Yes. I mean, you know, this, this is always the case in modern wars. You know, if we go back to all the wars, First World War, it was a low percentage, over 10% civilian casualties. Second World War, it whipped up to 60%, and now um, modern wars, it's much higher. Um, 
lot of the people, of course, in this area have come out. You know, they come out as DPs, and very large numbers of those uh, are in camps or have gone to stay with families or in other accommodation. So it's difficult at the moment to know exactly who's left in the area where the fighting is going on because the area is curfewed, the people are in the houses. But, but we have assessment teams in both uh, in Mingora and in uh, Lower Deer and in Buneer assessing the situation. And, and in the case of Deer, we got 31 truckloads in um, two days ago. How, you, how is the uh, ICRC re- re- received? Because there's some places there's a huge suspicion of any aid organisation. Well, the ICRC takes uh, great efforts to um, go by our principle of neutral, independent humanitarian action. And, um, you know, this is our doctrine and this is what we, we try to achieve. And, and by and large, people accept us for that. Um, we are only victim-oriented, uh, we are impartial, we are neutral and we are independent. And um, if people need helping... We make our assessments and all those priorities um, go ahead with what you know what we can. I don't know if you heard Hashir Tamarian saying that if he wants to know what's going on in Iraq or around that area, you gain in touch with the oil companies because they're the guys that are actually having to deal with it all the time. Is it the same yeah. with um, the aid agencies, uh, without getting into the politics of it or avoiding the politics of it, that you really do know the truth of what's on the ground far more perhaps than people who are trying to form policy back in Washington, London? Well, from the humanitarian point of view, I wouldn't say we get heavily into politics or into the military situation or whatever, but we, we may have you know, some good knowledge of the humanitarian situation and we'll concentrate on that. Yeah, but people talk to you and you can actually see uh, who's who and, and the consequences of what organisa- other organisations have done. I mean, it has happened, for example, the ICRC in, uh, in, in, in the Sudan Yes, I mean, uh, of course, there are a lot of organizations and, and, and the secret is to try and not, you know, have gaps and overlaps and um, and our organization will, I suppose, try to get closer to, to the front line um, where we sort of have more expertise. I mean, that's what we were raised for. We were, you know, raised on the battlefield. Um, we won't go charging around while the fighting is going on, but we'll try to get up and um, deal with those immediate aftermath of right. battle. Yeah, McLeod in Islamabad, thank you very much for joining us. Another thank D-Day fact, um, between 15,000 15, and 20,000 French civilians were killed, mainly as a result of Allied bombing, as we were saying earlier. It sort of ties in with what uh, uh, Brigadier McLeod was saying there. Um, John, the, the devastation of Kong, after the after the war, I mean, Kong was was a was a medieval city, wasn't it? Very Beautiful famous city, and, and, and you go there quite a lot, don't yes, you? And you can yeah. see as yeah, you there's enter, nothing left. You can see as you enter hands like this, uh, as you would go into the city, hands in prayer, and it's a very moving sight. The reconstruction has been immense. How long did it take you to get into Kong? Oh, it took us seven weeks to get into Kong. I mean, and you're supposed we, to have been there the next night. We should have been there on eight past twelve, uh, but then we're firing over open sights, and uh, we didn't move, uh, and uh, we we were so close that we had to put. 
pieces of material in front of our guns to make sure that our own bombers didn't hit us. And the Poles were victims. They lost a lot of men because, uh, you know, they were so close to the Nazis and the bombing has, you know, to be so precise that they were hit. They lost quite a few men. Where did you go afterwards? We, we turned uh, left and uh, went straight along to uh, um, Eindhoven and then up to Antwerp and then over the Reichwald Forest. Again, uh, General Horrocks, the Corps Commander of 30 Corps, always thought the, the regiment was the quickest onto action and we, called, we were called the horsey ones. We were called in there when the Germans uh, tried to fight back in the Reichwald Forest and we crossed over the Rhine and then uh, went uh, to complete with the, the signings on May the, the 9th, ending the war, after which I went out to the Far East to get ready for the next round. And then went Fortunately, Fortunately, it didn't happen. <laughs> then went back, well, then you went back to do your finals <laughs> and <laughs> the rest is Daily Mail or almost Daily <laughs> Mail history. Um, yeah, there's another side of this. I mean, me picking up the point about Kong, uh, and I remember, do you remember when Bucharest uh, mm. collapsed? Mm. What were we interested in? We were interested in the library mm. had gone. Mm. And when it went into Iraq, somebody was saying, over this wonderful historic yeah. site, the Americans were building a helicopter pad. We, we sometimes we care more about the destruction of historic buildings and libraries, etc., than, uh, than of people. I think it's understandable, Christopher. I am grieving, I am grieving 1,400 years afterwards nearly for a library in the royal palace of Tessifun, the capital of the Sasanian Empire, when the Arab Muslims overran it and the Caliph Omar ordered that any book that contradicted the Quran must be destroyed um, or it was unnecessary because whatever they needed was in the Quran. I'm still grieving for that library because a huge amount of art, particularly because Iran at that time had became, become the center of re Hellenistic revival yeah. because the Hellenistic philosophers had been expelled from um, Greece under the influence of the Christians. But, I'm still grieving for that. But, but John, I mean, we, we talk about places like Kong, the bombing of Dresden, the Blitz uh, in London, as being victims of the times, as if that explained it all and we can't apply modern morality to it. Is that rubbish? No, I think it's true, and it's, it's true, I think, of Tiananmen Square. I mean, there you had, uh, you know, a whole generation and their hopes and ideals crushed by the tanks, and you can think today of that man, the tank man, standing there with plastic the handbags on either side. When the tanks moved one way, he moved that way. When they moved the other way, he moved that way. What happened to the tank man, goodness only knows. Some people say he was sort of bundled off by his friends. Others say he was bundled off to the equivalent of the gulags to spend the rest of his time in prison. But it's also true, isn't it, Hajir, that uh, we see something like that, we put a label on it, and we're still doing it 20 years of later. Course we do. And we say those students were fighting for democracy. Yes. We actually don't know what those students were fighting for, because they were fighting for a whole load of things. There were things they just didn't like, and it was like a lot of students. That's movements. right. I was there in 68 in Paris, throwing pavé at the, yeah. uh, uh, the cops. And the students, of I course, didn't know what, I was fighting what for. is important about the students is that they are idealistic and they want the best. I myself hoped at one time that Iran would become a democracy after the fall of but it wasn't show. just the students. I mean, the workers got involved in Tiananmen Square, and the unemployed got involved, and mm. even uh, Gorbachev got involved. He had a state visit in the middle of it, and he was totally nonplussed by what he was hearing outside his residence. And mm. we should, I mean, should emphasize that uh, Tiananmen Square is 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 like Trafalgar Square. Oh, it's the holy of holies, and uh, there are no toilets there, no, no seats there. I mean, it's just a, <laughs> a glorification space. of empire. 
But and, and the and communist Mark emperor, Tung is still there? Yeah, with, with a little mark on his cheek. But uh, extraordinary mm. affair. I, I've never seen anything like but it. But as you were hinting, it's possible that if the students have succeeded and brought down the Communist Party, there might be chaos and the breakdown well, of that's China. A, that's what people feared at the time. I remember discussing this with uh, Lee Kuan Yew, the founder, uh, father oh. of the Singapore state. He said, when you have a wildfire, you have two choices. Either you stamp it out or you get burned themselves. If it hadn't been for the way Deng Xiaoping crushed it, there would have been civil war. Yeah. Um, just a final thought, I suppose, on D-Day, John. Um, uh, 27 war cemeteries, I was saying earlier, holding the remains of 110,000 dead from, from both sides, yes. or from all sides. Uh, that's another memory, isn't it? It is an impressive sight. You walk along these rows and rows of white stone headstones with just the names and the ages. You see a whole generation lost, yeah, yeah. 20, 21 years old. And, John, you had to live with their sisters afterwards, the yeah. sisters of the dead, brothers, families. That's it. Uh, never the same. Um, I mean, I, I went with one of my sergeants uh, to see the grave of his father, whom he never knew, when we went back to get a gun repaired. And we went into Ypres and saw the, the grave where his father was. It was just another reminder that generations succeed with the tragedy of the past. My thanks to John Dickey and to Hajir tomorrow.